Another part of personality is the way other people affect you. And if other people have a bad effect on you, you feel pretty strange. You might even feel uncomfortable. personality is the way you affect other people. Another part is the way other people affect you. This is only part of the story of your personality. KBOO Portland. Y'all ready for this? Ladies and Radio hanging out with you this afternoon. This weekend, there will be several events of note that we should mark down. The first will be Juneteenth. It marks the end of slavery in terms of how black people in the United States, the last black people who were in Texas to get the word two years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, were, were given the word that enslaved Africans were free and it was a celebration. It is called Juneteenth. It was also the day that the current president of the White House decided that he wanted to hold a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he wanted to do this rally as the first after a long three months pandemic shut-in. And many people saw that to be insulting, not only because he chose to do it on Juneteenth, but because he chose to do it in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was the place where the worst racial violence in this country took place almost 100 years ago, 99 years ago, to be exact. But Tulsa's also been in the, in the news for a number of other egregious acts that made the president's choice of location to be even more troubling. Joining us on the phone call this afternoon are two people from Tulsa. One is a longtime friend and an educator, a professor at one point, and now is over in Ghana. Her name is Aaron Ranson. And the other is currently in Tulsa, who's actually putting together a Juneteenth rally. And we heard a little bit of his song coming into this show. His name is Cody Ransom. 
So, folks, welcome to the show. And let me start off with you, Aaron, because you long told me about Tulsa when we first met. What do we really need to know? And when you first heard the news that this president was going to throw a rally in Tulsa, what went through your mind and what should people be concerned or thinking about? Uh, first of all, Dave, thanks for having us on the show and um, talking about Tulsa, man. It, it makes me really happy that people are learning about our history. Um, it's unfortunate for the reasons which um, it's coming to light. But when I first heard about um, Trump wanting to hold a rally in Tulsa, I just thought it was so insensitive and so callous and I mean honestly it made me ask like is he trying to provoke a way a race war um, you know Tulsa has a history of a lot of racial tension um, I felt it was gonna be like a slap in the face particularly to North Tulsa which is where most black people in Tulsa live um, it also made me concerned for my family it made me just concerned for you know what was what was going to happen and what might be provoked by him um, coming to Tulsa and coming on Juneteenth. I mean, I don't think that you could sort of miss, it's not really subtle, but I don't think you can miss the subtle messages um, in, him, in him choosing that date and that place. So I thought it was offensive. I thought it was irresponsible. I thought it was callous and hateful and ugly and... Um, I, I mean, it really further makes me question this president's sanity, um, his humanity, all of that. You know, this is not the first time a presidential candidate has chosen a particular locale to send what people used to claim was a dog whistle. Uh, Ronald Reagan famously did his opening to his campaign in the early 80s in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which was the site of the killing of the three civil rights workers, Cheney, I, I forget their names offhand, um, but that was a turning point in the sense that it sent a clear message that this president was seeking out a particular type of uh, person to vote for him or galvanize themselves around him, and it was sending a message that this president gave zero Fs about a particular group of people in this case, black folks who um, were a part of the civil rights struggle. With Tulsa, it goes a little bit deeper because what took place in Tulsa in the race riots, but I call it a race massacre, is even more troubling because of what it symbolized in terms of black success. It was once called Black Wall Street, and what it ultimately wound up being, which was the destruction of a vibrant community and, uh, and, and something that I would only imagine that you as a Tulsian and people that grew up around you, Aaron, um, would, would be triggered if they heard something like that. Am I correct in, in thinking that even though it was almost 100 years ago, I can only imagine that memory of what took place is still etched in a lot of people's, uh, at least their genetic makeup. Well, absolutely, but the, but the interesting thing about it is, you know, you said you would imagine that it's, it's etched in a lot of people's memories. Unfortunately, I mean, me personally, I didn't learn about Black Wall Street or, the, or Greenwood or the Tulsa Race Massacre until I left Tulsa. It was never taught to me when really? I went to, yeah. So there is an intentional, deliberate, nearly 100 year effort to erase this from uh, history, to erase it from, from Tulsa memory. And, you know, I, I watched a, a show that was talking about it and they said that it, it, it murdered the memory of Black Wall Street, but I also think it murdered a mindset of a people. And um, this effort by Trump and, and others that have been done, you know, for example, I was talking with my cousin Cody about the fact that that show Live PD and um, First 48 is recorded in North Tulsa. So we have murdered the mindset of a prosperous, peaceful, and productive people 
and we're replacing it with images of poverty, of gang violence, of poor school performance, of police uh, terrorism, and, and, and basically sending the, the image and the message to Tulsa of like uh, North Tulsa being criminal. And I, I think that that is really the sinister, ugly, just horrendous part of it all, that there's an erasure of the truth and replacing it with something um, that's really depressing, that's really, you know, confining and, and limiting. And it's intentional. <laughs> wow. I did not realize you did not, that you all, that that history has been hidden. It reminds me of what they've done in some countries where they don't talk about particular incidents of, cons uh, of trouble because they don't want to uh, anger folks, so they just erase it. And we've seen We've seen that over the years with um, the Texas uh, history books, which most of the country um, builds their education around because of the size of that state and uh, in the way that uh, uh, certain school materials are distributed. But they removed the word slavery. They, they removed all types of things, almost like, as you said, to whitewash and sanitize uh, a very disturbing history. Cody, you're there now, and in fact, you're putting on a Juneteenth rally. Uh, what's it been like for you, your peers? We've seen that you've done a song that talks about the Tulsa race riots, or I, I keep saying riots, but I use the word massacre. But what's it been like for you, and what's been the vibe from the people, your peers, right now um, at this moment? Uh, it's, it's actually, it's been pretty tense out here. Um, mainly because um as soon as george floyd was murdered it instantly sparked up and brought back the terrence crutcher killing so um for people who don't know let's talk about terrence clutcher for a minute so we understand that okay uh terrence crutcher he uh it's crazy his family lived next door to our family so uh knew him growing up he his car had stopped in the middle of the street. Um, the officer, Betty Shelby, came. And when she saw him, I, for some reason, she was just afraid. Um, she said he wasn't following instructions, said that he was reaching in the car, which from the videos we, we had access to and the accounts that we hear, his window was up, but she said he reached in the window of the car and she shot him and killed him. Uh, she was found not guilty and just as another slap in the face they actually had her teaching um, high risk situations uh, when to use your firearm they had her doing that uh, less than less than six months after she was acquitted so wait a second so a police officer that shot somebody in a very questionable and very controversial shooting many of us saw that video you show parts of that in your song that we played, was acquitted, which was a slap in the face. And also, this was happening in the middle of all these police shootings, like Mike Brown, all these different things. So there was a lot of awareness and a lot of, of concern about police terrorism. But she got to teach a class on how to handle yourself in high-risk situations when it yes. appeared by many that she actually was afraid of <laughs> of of engaging a high risk situation yes yes and it's another reason it was as controversial as it was was because she wasn't alone when she did it um so she fired her firearm and her partner didn't even have his firearm out he had his taser so to us it was kind of like she was afraid for her life so she used the firearm and her partner didn't think it was that serious so he had his taser so but here in Tulsa that's kind of we have a history of them kind of putting things out there like that for us so whatever happens we kind of get a slap in the face backhanded slap like with pretty much everything so even with the race massacre like how Aaron said she hadn't heard about it I didn't hear about it either um, and we stay right down the street from uh, it's called the Greenwood Cultural Center, but it's where it has a lot of the pictures and newspaper clippings and stuff like that from Black Wall Street. But 
you know, the field trips take you to uh, an art museum. It takes you to the zoo. You know, you never go to anything like that. Um, and then also one of the people who were involved, one of the leaders, he was a clan leader as well, but they named a lot of the districts in Tulsa after him. So a man named Tate Brady, which Aaron, our, you know, you know, our grandmother has a house, uh, had a house in Brady Heights. Um, which is named after Tate Brady. The downtown district was named after him. Yeah. Yeah. It was named after him for quite a while, and it took years and years of petitioning to get his name removed from a lot of things. So even though they knew he was one of the founders of Tulsa, but he was also well-renowned as a as a Klan leader. So it was not only, you know, are you going to use his name, but you're going to use it in areas that, you know black people live in so for when my grandmother moved where you know to where we stayed that community was pretty much all black but then you name it you name it Brady Heights after him in an all black community so every day you see signs with this man's name on it so yeah that's that's pretty much Tulsa's history though Somebody listening would somebody listening or the the lawyers or the business owners from Black Wall Street. We don't even know their names. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Um, did this erasure of the history for people who actually live there? One would say, well, didn't your parents and grandparents teach you, or is this something that's been generational? You know, and, and I'm not trying to point a finger, but I'm just asking as to, you know, like here in Oakland, they don't teach about the Panthers, obviously, um, but we know about it because there's just so many people that will speak about it. But you talked about this very intense and very intentional erasure. So I'm just trying to convey how that how how that was really played out. Yeah, I yeah. would say um, we, we don't. Yeah, we don't. I, like my mom, she, my mom knew very little about it. Um, and it was, it's something that until they just agreed this year to start teaching it in school. So it, it of course my kids know about it. Cause once I found out, I would, I would tell them, but my mom knew very little about it. Um, our communities here, the black communities, especially in North Tulsa, it's, you're, you're pretty well boxed in. So trying to venture out and so even though Black Wall Street is less than five minutes from where we grew up we never went to that area you know it was an area we never ventured to so um, I know my grandmother she she didn't mention it um, and even my friends they, they would say their parents didn't mention it either so it was it's kind of like something you just don't talk about in the city so when you hear the history of Tulsa and all of that, the first time I heard the name Black Wall Street was actually when the rapper, the game, had mentioned he had, like, DJs and things of that nature, and they used the name Black Wall Street. So that was the first time I had actually heard the term Black Wall Street. And that's kind of when I was rapping at the time as well. So some of the rap community here, they kind of got in an uproar about it because they was like, no, this is the real Black Wall Street. And I couldn't understand. I didn't know what they were talking about. So they hmm. kind of took me around and, and put me you know put me up to speed took me to the Greenwood Cultural Center and go down historic Greenwood and that's when I saw like these businesses that I, I had been to before I didn't know what they were I didn't know that this is where all of this happened I didn't know Dick Rowland Sarah Page I knew none of that so uh, yeah it's kind of just like a, it's a secret that everybody seemed to keep for a long time Aaron, what would if you I add to that? Add to that, yeah. If I could add to that, you know, part of the erasure is also that when you do go to historic Greenwood, um, there's about one or two blocks, maybe Cody, um, that has businesses. The rest of it is just like open field, as if nothing ever was there. So, although 36 blocks were decimated. I think 1,200 homes, uh, hundreds of businesses, um, and it was 36 city blocks in total, Black Wall Street, is now 
I would even say this is being generous to say that it's two blocks. So growing up, yes, you went on Greenwood all the time. I thought about Greenwood in terms of the Gap Band. Because, right. You know, they're from Tulsa, and they the name themselves after Greenwood, Archer, and Pine, which are three uh, streets in the in North Tulsa. But in terms of Greenwood being Black Wall Street, there's nothing there to remember. There's nothing there to point to. Wow. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with Aaron Ranson, an educator, uh, you know, now living in Ghana, but originally from Tulsa. And we're also talking with Cody Ranson, um, an activist also in Tulsa, and finding out what people are feeling with the upcoming rally of this current president, Donald Trump. Let me ask you this, uh, Cody or Aaron, you both talked about this city being very segregated, that folks, black folks, are kind of on the north side of the city, and it's tucked away. And when we were just starting the show, um, I think uh, you were talking, Cody, about the filming of a police show, of a couple of police shows, that further demonized and, and, and was very triggering to many of the residents in Tulsa because they would bring their cameras and focus on that. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, that whole atmosphere and environment and what people are feeling, you know, how that contributes to the perception of this president who says he wants to talk about race relations uh, when he comes to the city to do his rally, which has now been fortunately moved to a Saturday. Um, but let's talk about, you know, let's put this in this larger context the filming of police shows and, and, and in spite of protests from people who live in North Tulsa. Um, so tell us a little bit about that, Cody. Yeah, with uh, with Live PD. Um, That's the I name of the show, it. Live PD. Yes, I had watched I had watched the show when it was in other cities uh, a couple times, enough to know that I didn't like the show. But when they when they brought Live PD to Tulsa, instead of using the same format that I saw them use in other cities, which was just riding with the patrol officers, they decided to use the gang task force, and that's who they rode with here. So the gang task force is largely concentrated in North Tulsa. So a lot of what you see is it's the pockets of town that really haven't had access to anything else. It's, you know, there's people in those pockets of town that haven't even been to the south side before. So for them to patrol that particular area, use the gang task force, it was really always black people that you saw on the show. Um, very, very seldom did they have anybody else. And so they would ride around the neighborhoods and just look for look for exciting things to do. You know, it's to spark up a situation and then the the gang task force uh, sergeant at the time Steve Larkin we call him Sticks here I've known of Sticks for a very long time and he doesn't have a good reputation in the black community so for him to be the face of live PD of Tulsa when it's well known that we never we don't really care for him much so for them to make him the him the face of it uh he was getting famous he got famous for it so it was something that i even though we we begged and pleaded for them to get rid of the show the mayor here gt bynum he would just he would justify this show over and over and over and it really took it took george floyd's murder and the protest and the marching here for him to sit down with some of the community leaders and they again stressed to him that this show not only paints a bad light on the black community but Tulsa as a whole you're showing you're showing a pocket of people that really need help and you're not helping them so by you know putting this show out you're really hurting yourself even though you're victimizing us you're, you're still hurting the image of Tulsa so he finally agreed to not renew the contract but didn't say he would cancel the show but then the way Tulsa set up immediately after that, there was a petition to not cancel the show, even though he agreed to. So it's wait, there was a really... petition to not cancel the show after you all complained and, and got it off. Yeah, 
yeah, he uh, he agreed to not renew the contract, and then the very next day, of course, a bunch of people here came up with a petition to not cancel the show. So even though the other communities here know, they know our complaints about it, they know how we feel about it, nobody seems to care. It's more of, this is what we want, so this is what we're going to do. Um, so they're still trying to petition to not cancel the show. Uh, they get they've gotten quite a few signatures he still he still says he's going to keep his word and not renew it but in Tulsa it's kind of like you take the word but you just wait mm -hmm. because it's I mean so many times you know the political leaders here go back on so many different things that you know it's it's kind of just yeah he'll keep his word for now and you wait let me ask you this. There's another couple of police controversies in Tulsa leading up to this rally. One is from a police uh, lieutenant or captain, I think his name is Yates, where he talked about there actually should be more black people that should be getting shot by the police or something crazy to that effect. And we also saw the video, the widely uh, circulated video of police tackling and arresting a young black teen for walking, jaywalking. Um, can we talk a little bit about that, either you, Cody, or Aaron, um, those two things and what it's contributing, what's it leading up to with this president coming to speak over the weekend? Yeah, it it was with Major Yates. He, he was one of the officers before he said that. He was one of the officers that they would put in in the black communities with a lot of the black officers. So to hear him, uh, which his account is that he was quoting the statistics and he was just basing that comment on the statistics that technically they should be killing more, they should be shooting and killing more black people. Um, a few of the black officers here, of course, normally it's kind of like a big, big blanket of silence. Um, but quite a few, quite a few actually stood up to him and, and, called him out over it but with with him and then the two teenagers even the jaywalking at least in our city if there's no sidewalk it's not jaywalking to walk in the street and that's that's the situation those kids were in but that exact situation that those kids ran into is what live PD normally covers that's mm. the area that they normally patrol that's the kind of thing they would have recorded so for them to be that particular street that they're on, there's there's very little traffic. You may see 20 to 30 cars in a day on that street, but that's the street that you will have patrolling on. So for us here, it just, we've been tense since Terrence Crutcher, and then we had a guy named Joshua Barre who was uh, mentally ill. He was shot and killed as well out here. Another guy, Eric Harris, was killed here. So it's we we've already it never died down. It it, it was suppressed a little bit, but as far as our community, we still we were still very tense about it. So when you hear Major Yates, you know, say that we should actually have more black people shot and killed, like for Trump to want to come at that time on Juneteenth. And after all the things that have happened here, it's for us, it was peaceful here as far as our protests for the most part. But I know quite a few peaceful leaders that were at that point thinking, I don't want to be peaceful anymore if he's going to come here and do this. So it definitely was going to spark violence. Right. Aaron, what do you anticipate this president speaking about? when he comes to Tulsa and just because you've been in Ghana how is it perceived over in the continent where you're at this president and the stuff that's going on just out of curiosity what I expect him to, to talk about is um, unemployment in the African American community but um, I hope that that's contrasted with the fact that yes I live in Ghana but there's parts of North Tulsa that looks like a developing country. So I don't know how well that's gonna go down, talking about um, the numbers of, of jobs that have so-called been created. 
for African Americans because in Tulsa, I don't think that it's reached there at all yet. Um, in terms of how it's perceived, well, I mean, first of all, if, if Tulsa and the race massacre is not well known in the United States, it's like only people have had <laughs> conversations with me about my, my uh, hometown, as I call it here, uh, or my village. Um, those are the only people that know anything about this. Um, so there really isn't a lot of awareness about the context of like what it signifies for Trump to want to come to Tulsa and even what Tulsa means to um, African-American history. So, you know, also there's a pandemic here, there's uh, systemic issues here. So, you know, a lot of people that I've spoken to kind of have like crisis fatigue in Africa um, which is understandable to some degree, but it also just highlights um, the effectiveness of the historical divisions that have been put in place between um, Africans on the continent and Africans in the diaspora. And it just, just highlights the need for uh, greater Pan-African awareness and unity and solidarity. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, been, it's been tough listening to, you know, some of the lack of understanding or outright ignorance sometimes. Um, it's those people who have lived in the U.S. from Ghana um, that are now back home who understand more, but the average Ghanaian, you know, um, sees what you see on mainstream media. So the response to the protests and things like that might be, well, why are they looting? You know, the same kind of thing you might expect to hear maybe on Fox or something. Wow. Um, but it's like, we have to, I find myself having to sort of show a sort of revolutionary kind of compassion and love and understanding because, um, you know, African-Americans don't know a lot about Africa, too. And so from that other side, I know that, you know, we back home can say things about our lack of awareness about Africa and uh, stereotypes. So it's complex, man. It's a lot of layers. This is this is really um, bringing up a lot of issues um, simultaneously. And uh, it's it's a lot to unpack, really. I hear you on that. Cody, um, what do you anticipate this president to say um, when he comes to town, especially knowing, as Aaron mentioned, there's a pandemic all around the world, but Oklahoma, where Tulsa is located, has had a spike in coronavirus cases. So you have that going on where there's going to be a large gathering. Um, what, what do you anticipate him talking about? Uh, definitely about Oklahoma's coronavirus and the handling of it. But I actually anticipate him coming here and some way or another inciting hate. I can see him using this as an opportunity to do so. Um, because where, where they're having his rally is about, I want to say maybe three to four blocks from Black Wall Street. So it, it's... It's not only the timing of him coming, but it's the location you pick. It's, and I think that all of that is strategic to, you know, of course, appeal to a certain audience. Tulsa and Oklahoma in general is a uh, red state. It is, I mean, he has a lot of support in these areas. Um, and if you, just because he moved it from the 19th in Tulsa, we normally have Juneteenth celebration the entire weekend. So even with it being moved to the 20th, there's there used to be, there's normally a Juneteenth celebration that day as well, which there will be here as well. But it's, so you're really taking, you know, all of the Trump supporters and then the black community concentrated to this one area and we're all gonna be within, like I say, two to three blocks of each other. So, yeah. Do you, um? Do you think he will talk about the good things that he's done for black folks, considering? Oh, yeah. Do you think that he will find black support in a place like Tulsa? 
Because one of the things they're saying, if he can get a certain percentage of black people to vote for him, um, then he thinks that he'll be able to win re-election. And so there's been a push. So I know you said you think he'll he'll use this as an opportunity to stir up hate. Do you think that there will be some black folks that will be sitting behind him and he'll turn around and say, look, I got uh, people who love what I'm talking about? Uh, definitely. They'll have a Candace Owen or two in there. Uh, it's and there's a, there's a couple here, um, but for the most part in Tulsa, I really don't think there's there's anything he could say here that would make us uh, feel any differently about him. Um, and I think him picking Juneteenth alienated quite a few of the ones he did have. Mm. Um, I think it opened opened their eyes to what what we had already been saying we felt like he was doing. Um, there's a, I have a couple friends, uh, I use that word tentatively, but I have a couple friends that, that were supporters of Trump. And when he chose to come on Juneteenth, it, that's when they were just like, wait, what? I don't, they couldn't understand why you would do that. Because if, if you just come to Tulsa for two to three hours, you feel the tension here. This, there's people here who really think, you know the Black Wall Street massacre. It, I mean, it it could happen again this weekend. That's the way it feels, and talking to people, that's the way it comes off. So, I think, like I said, there's not much he could really say to garner more support from us. But there's already people here lined up in front of the venue he's going to be at. Uh, they've been here for about two days, and so the amount of support he has in Tulsa, it's it's. I mean, it's tremendous. Wow. Well, you know, that's something that we need to just reflect on, and we'll keep our eyes and ears out on that. Um, Aaron, any last words from you um, as we get ready to close out this section of the show? Um, I, I really think that uh, Tulsa is, and Tulsa's history shows, um, one, a very strong case for the need for reparations. Um, not only reparations financially from US government, but uh, for us to repair ourselves and unite ourselves and, and really um, work together for our own interests um, and to recall who we really are and what we've, what we've endured, what we've survived um, and to draw upon our resilience to uh, create a way forward um, that that will be a better reality for our future and for our children. And um, we have to hold America accountable to be what it says it is. Um, and yeah, I, I encourage everybody to go back and, and learn about uh, Black Wall Street and about Tulsa Race Massacre. And uh, if you ever get a chance, go and see what Tulsa is now and see the, um, the, the sort of tragedy that was created by uh, that infamous day. Appreciate in that. That is Erin Ranson, um, Tulsa native in Ghana talking about her city. Uh, Cody, any last comments from you? Uh, yeah, I would just you know, reiterate what Erin said and also with the Juneteenth celebration that we are having that, you know, me and a friend put together it's it's a way you know i know it will be streamed live on a lot of different platforms but it is a way to see the resilience of black tulsa uh there will be uh he said a huge celebration that we're putting together just because we know especially now more than ever we have to we have to stick together because the the years and years of asking for help hasn't really got us very far. And so it's now time for us to kind of create those lanes as best we can and and make the best of it. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 if you get a chance to come to Tulsa, there is, there's a lot of potential here. It's just uh, how we like to say it's beneath the ashes of Greenwood. So we have to dig it up. Real talk. Cody Ranson, Aaron Ranson, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon on Hard Knock Radio talking to us about Tulsa, Oklahoma and what to expect this weekend. We're going to take a break, folks, and we'll be right back. Mm, mm, mm. 
thank our guests, Cody Ransom, Aaron Ransom out of Tulsa. One of the things that they had mentioned was that there wasn't a lot of history taught in their schools about what happened with Black Wall Street. And I figured, you know what, let's take a little bit of time to enlighten people on that. And I wanted to bring in somebody who has made Tulsa her life work. She was doing projects around Tulsa, digital mapping and working with uh, the late lawyer, Charles Ogletree at Harvard um, for projects that they were doing to try and get reparations for the people in Tulsa. Um, she has spoken all over the country about Tulsa. She's written articles um, that are coming out all week long about Tulsa. She uh, teaches at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, and her name is, when she's been on our show before, we called her Dr. Goddess because she had a play. And that's what we knew her as, but she is Dr. Kimberly Ellis. Dr. Ellis, it's good to have you on here. Tulsa is really your beat when it comes to breaking down this history. And a lot of people are excited and talking about it, but there's also a lot of misinformation about it. Um, some of it may have stemmed from it being featured in the uh, Watchmen series. That you know, it's good that it brought people to its attention, but there may have been some details that were missed when people got wind of it there. Um, some people know it through the game, the rapper, as uh, Kobe, as uh, Cody was talking about. So they think Black Wall Street is you know owned by uh, a rap company. But what do we need to know about Black Wall Street in Tulsa? Well, thank you so much for having me back, uh, Davey. We love your show as usual. And um, there is so much to know. There's so much to understand. I want to begin with the culture of silence, especially because that's where your last guest left off. And I want for everybody to be very clear that when what I call the Tulsa race riot war and massacre occurred, or as uh, another phrase I like is the Tulsa disaster, um, and I'll, I'll, I can explain why, um, when it occurred, it was front page news all across the United States. <laughs> um, everybody covered Tulsa. It was appalling to find out what happened in Tulsa. So the irony of the situation is that the news swept across the United States and then suddenly it was almost like it was gone and a culture of silence developed that was so thick and it was rooted in shame, like multiple levels of shame, that the culture of silence allowed for the history to be largely erased except for the oral history and the pictures that existed in people's archives. Before those whites were deputized, there were African-American war veterans who came down armed. Initially, it was just a small group. It was like 25 of them, you know, and they, they were definitely like no immediate, ma they weren't coming to confront the mob of hundreds, plural, that had gathered around uh, the city, the Tulsa City Courthouse. They went down to ask the sheriff if they could offer themselves, you know, to make sure that Dick Rowland would not be taken out. Dick Rowland was a 19-year-old shoeshine boy. He may have sold some newspapers, and he was also a high school dropout, which is also important to know. And he was downtown on Memorial Day. They were having the parade and everything. And th they had the parade that morning. And th because this was still during Jim Crow segregation, there was only one building on the top floor uh, where, he, where, where uh, black people could use the bathroom. So that's where he was headed. So he had to get on the elevator. And then apparently he like tripped, you know, when he got on the elevator or something to the point where he touched a 17-year-old, uh, another teenager, a white girl named Sarah Page, and she screamed or something. And nothing really happened between them, but because she screamed and because of whatever happened, white men came rushing and just automatically accused him of trying to rape her. And that is really what set everything off because then he was afraid, you know, and they were like, they were trying to physically assault him, and then he ran back to Greenwood. 
Um, and so then they went and got the police. The police went and got Dick Rowland from Greenwood and then took him to the city courthouse. And by the afternoon paper, that four o'clock paper, um, the headline was Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in Elevator. So just, you know, briefly, because we don't have a lot of time, Tulsa, Black Wall Street was a very prosperous and a very uh, well-known area in terms of people who literally did what today folks would say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. They did all that and then yep. some. Yep. And so the impetus was not really because he touched a white girl or was accused, but was it because of the prosperity of this community? There was jealousy? Absolutely. So here's the thing, like with Oklahoma becoming a state, one of the first things they did was to segregate the telephone booths. They were actually proud of that, okay? It was just a reference, the Negroes Wall Street. But they didn't refer to themselves as Black Wall Street. Their name is Greenwood, period. And in fact, it's really important for everybody to under, to, to remember and know Greenwood because Greenwood, the Greenwood uh, Residential and Business District in Tulsa, Oklahoma is actually named after the Greenwood in Mississippi. So that our direct connection, you know, of African-Americans from the South and our migration from the South, you know, to the West is very, very important. I want to make that connecting line. Um, and yes, it was, there was a reference like, oh, this is like the Negroes Wall Street. That's true. That happened. But this idea that they branded themselves and characterized themselves as Black Wall Street is partly inaccurate. I just want to be clear. That's us who, you know, that's us who did that. Um, they weren't even using the term black at the time. And it's okay, you know, because again, there's not a big leap from, oh, this is like the Negroes Wall Street to Black Wall Street, but it, it, I'm a historian and we have to be accurate. So right. when it comes to the institution of white supremacy with the statehood of Oklahoma and then the implementation of Jim Crow, the thing is that Tulsa became a boom town because of the discovery of oil on what was previously considered like worthless land, right? And that when, you, when you're a boom town, it means that you like blow up overnight, that that money is there. It was like the gold rush, except it wasn't gold, it was oil, black oil, you know, black gold as they say. So if you were already Native American or African American and you own land, you could now lease your part of your land or you could sell your land and you definitely became very wealthy. If you already had some wealth, you could come to Tulsa and you could find a, a good place to build your business, you know, and, and you knew that like this was a thriving business community. You know, development usually comes in waves and comes in groups. It's usually not just, you know, one business and another, but people like the fact that, oh, this is thriving. I want to be a part of it. And that's how the Negroes Wall Street in Greenwood um, was created. And so, yes, there were a lot of wealthy African-Americans, but there were also I won't say poor, but there was, it wasn't just that everybody was wealthy. That's not accurate. It's that there was enough wealth in the Greenwood community that helped sustain everybody at a certain level. So it was almost like there definitely was like, I wouldn't say that there was like abject poverty, you know what I mean? But there were people that worked as domestic workers. You mm -hmm. know, there were people that were launderers. You know, I don't want for everybody to think that everybody was just filthy rich. That's not true. But if you were a domestic worker and, and or if you were a launderer or something like that, the fact that you worked for probably wealthy people meant that you had a higher wage than like an average domestic worker in the rest of the United States. You know what I mean? So their per capita income was higher, even if they were lower income, if that makes okay. sense. So there was that economic jealousy between poor whites. They hated to see, especially if they get poor. It wasn't just that they were poor, right? It's also that they were racist, right? So if you're a poor white racist and you just arrived in Tulsa or you weren't able to come up, you didn't, you weren't a landowner, you weren't, you know, a whole host of different things, you definitely didn't like to see the Williams family driving around in their fancy car and owning their theater and seeing that district. There was absolute economic jealousy and racism, and that was the spark. And the Dick Rowland rape was just an excuse to terrorize and put the Negro back in the Negro's place. That's why a lot of the pictures say running the Negro out of Tulsa. So hundreds of businesses were, were burnt. Hundreds of people were killed. And, yeah. and, and it was suppression of this information that lasted generations. And it's about 1,300 businesses and residents that were it was right. the, the exact count is like around 13. I think it's 1256 to be accurate. But like, so, that's a lot. Right. So you so. wanted to take it up to today. 
you know, we talked about the ter the Terrence Crudges situation and others, but what other aspect did you want to include that we need to know today? And I know that you all were trying to get reparations, so that didn't happen yet, right? Right. We, I literally, uh, you know, I was still a young scholar when we went on the road to reparations, um, and the reason why they're deserving of reparations has everything to do with what's happening today, including Trump and the what you see happening relative to the Black Lives Matter marches where white right-wing militias, they are standing on the sidelines. This is separate from some of the young white anarchists that we're seeing, you know what I mean, who are just like, you know, lighting fire to different buildings and whatnot. There's the right-wing militia. They're standing off on the side. They're heavily armed. And either as individuals or small groups or larger groups, they are coming up to the police and offering their services. They want to be, quote-unquote, deputized, okay? And that's what happened in Tulsa. The black men who came down and who were armed were on the side of law and order because they were offering their services to the sheriff to say, hey, we'll help you protect Dick Rowland to make sure he's not just you know, taken out of the courthouse and lynched. Like, you know, there's a due process. We, we're going to make sure that Dick Rowland has his due process. They were rebuffed by the sheriff, told, no, nah, just, you know, go back. As the mob grew, you know, uh, another, a larger group of African-American men who were also armed, then they came down and said, like, hey, this is getting out of control. Like, we're nervous that, you know, Dick Rowland is going to be taken out of the courthouse and lynched. And their their concerns were real because a mob had taken a white man out of the courthouse and lynched him just the previous fall. So like, it was real. But so the point being, when the so-called riot popped off and immediately around the courthouse and people died immediately, there were whites who were armed, there were blacks who were armed. Uh, the whites are the ones that stepped up. The black men retreated to Greenwood to protect their, to protect themselves, you know, and their community because they were definitely outnumbered even there down at the courthouse. But the white, some whites stepped up and, and now they offered the sheriff to uphold law and order and the sheriff deputized them to then, they then had a license to kill. Now, if you're a racist and you, you know, it was a rise to the KKK, they wanted that license to kill because now they could kill black people with impunity, which is exactly what these right wing, wing militias are doing as they stand on the edge of the Black Lives Matter movement and as people are marching. And if, if you know, by nighttime things descend into chaos or there's confrontations with police, they are armed, they're heavily armed, they stay on the side and they offer their services to the police so that as soon as the police look like they're being overwhelmed or something like that, they're waiting for that message from Trump or any local official that they can be deputized and then they have a license to kill with impunity. And I would I need for everybody to understand this connection because okay. they wanted a race war and they are they, they are right at the tip of having it if the law gives in to them. So let me just close with this. We did the show on Tuesday about the shooting in New Mexico when they pulled down the statue, and there was a militia there. Mm -hmm. And one of the transcripts that came out from the police radio calls to each other was they said there are protesters and there are, quote-unquote, armed friendlies. So the people that came there to agitate the protesters and get them into a fight and then one of them winds up shooting one of the protesters That's are right. deemed by the police in Albuquerque as armed friendlies. So that term armed friendlies does bring it back full circle to this whole thing of deputization. And, you know, I think it just underscores the point that you're making. Dr. Ellis, we've run out of time, but we're going to have to have you come back on. Okay. And I appreciate you giving us so much information on this thing with Tulsa. Um, we're going to keep our eyes and ears open to see what is said during this speech. You know, I would not be surprised if this man offers some sort of reparations as just a political ploy, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll, we'll see where this goes. But I could see him saying, I'm going to give you all some reparations. Might be a $1,200 check. But I think there's going to be that word uttered as a way to cause confusion. But Dr. Ellis, thank you, or Dr. Goddess, as you know, we appreciate that. And if people want to go to your site, how can they do that where they can get more information? They can go to drkimberlyellis.com, which will be live shortly, and they can go to blackpoliticsmatter.com. Very important. And I appreciate you having me. 
We're going to take a break on Hard Knock Radio. Later. Ha. Hey, hey, hey. Ho, 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 Hard Knock Radio. East, West, North, radio, South, man. Conectados. Every set, every hood. Barrio, the barrio. Y'all stand up. Stay righteous. Speaking to the thugs. One love. We know where y'all at. Brown Buffalo, it's a hard knock life, gotta pay your bills. They want a song about bling, but it ain't real. Uh, we speak to the kids and the OGs. Organize, mobilize, be the change you wanna see. 415s bumping hard knock radio. Brown Buffalo, all up in your stereo. And to the youth, live life like it's golden. Go dumb, go hard, but don't forget where you're going. We from the hood, so it's all to the good. Let us know this what you're feeling is right. Let's get this understood. It's only one reason why we here today. We trying to make real music so the people can be made. Yeah. Learning from this hard knocks, slipping in these hard knocks, listening to hard knocks, questioning the vodka. Learning through these hard knocks, living for this hip hop, listening to hard knocks, ripping to the hard side. Learning from the hard knocks, living in these hard knocks, listening to hard knocks, questioning the vodka. Learning through these hard knocks, living for this hip hop, listening to hard knocks, ripping to the hard side. Join KBU on June 19th for a special Juneteenth broadcast. We'll hear from local voices, activists, and leaders on the meaning of this celebration. Then on Saturday, June 20th, tune into KBU's live broadcast of the Juneteenth Oregon's 45th annual event. The June 19th holiday commemorates the end of slavery in the United States. But 155 years after the news of their emancipation finally reached slaves in Galveston, Texas, the nation is still struggling with the issues of systemic racism and injustice. That struggle surfaced once again in the national debate and massive Black Lives Matter protests that were sparked by the killings of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers on May 25th. In many ways, Juneteenth represents how freedom and justice in the U.S. has always been delayed for black people. The decades after the end of the war would see a wave of lynching, imprisonment, and Jim Crow laws take root. What followed was the disproportionate impact of mass incarceration, discriminatory housing policies, and a lack of economic investment. And now, as national attention remains focused on acts of police violence and various racial profiling incidents, it is clear that while progress has been made in Black America's 150 years out of bondage, considerable barriers continue to impede that progress. 47 states and the District of Columbia mark June 19th as a state holiday or observance. But despite a push by activists over the years, Juneteenth still isn't a federal holiday. It is clear that now more than ever, Juneteenth is a necessary cornerstone of this country's tradition. Again, that's all-day special programming and celebration of Juneteenth on Friday, June 19th, and on Saturday, June 20th, here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland.
meow, meow. You're listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM Community Radio. Join KBOO on June 19th for a special Juneteenth broadcast. We'll hear from local voices, activists, and leaders on the meaning of this celebration. Then on Saturday,